Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is our resident Oilers correspondent, but also, most importantly, uh, a PDO cast Mount Rushmore occupant. It's my good buddy Jonathan Willis. Jonathan, what's going on, man? Ooh, we're at Mount Rushmore. I, uh, oh, for I'm sure. I mean, I mean, what, what are we at? We must be at double digit appearances right now, right? Like, I feel like it's uh, yourself and, and Andrew Berkshire <laughs> are probably pacing the way in terms of most common guests and, and probably the, the shows I enjoy doing, doing the most. I feel like we've got a good chemistry right now. We've got a good rapport. We, we kind of know the tones we want to hit. I, I feel like, you know, you're, you're checking all the boxes. Well, I, you know, I love doing this. It's always fun because we, we just kind of talk about whatever we're going to talk about. And I, I guess today we have some some actual news and uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. Well, it's amazing because the season has flown by a little bit and it's been an exciting one for sure. And, and there's been a lot of news, but I re- hadn't realized that I hadn't really even had you on the show since before the year started. We The last time you were on, we were dissecting the Eric Carlson trade and the Max Pacioretty trades. And that was all the way back in September before the regular season even got going. So it's been a while. And, and as you alluded to, um, for anyone that somehow has been like living in a cave or something, and the first thing they're doing upon return uh, to civilization is listening to the PDO cast. I thank you for that. But um, otherwise, <laughs> everyone likely knows already by now that... Um, you know, the Oilers have uh, relieved Peter Shirelli of his duties and are conducting yet another um, in a long list of GM searches. And um, we're going to get into all of that. I, I think there's plenty of different ways we can unpack it. I think, okay, for, first off, here's one preface. We're recording this on a Friday morning, and I think we're probably even going to save it until Monday morning just because it is the all-star break. And I kind of want to let this breathe a little bit and, and uh, give people a bit of a break from from digesting this sort of content so hopefully in the meantime there's no uh, new breaking news or revelatory stuff or or a hiring that takes place but i think we're gonna be pretty good um so jonathan i have two scenarios for you and i honestly for the life of me i was thinking about this and i couldn't decide which i would consider to be more alarming if it really was the case and we don't know what how how it fully transpired or what the real answer was so that's why it's a bit of this uh mystery and i'll let you pick uh, which one would be more alarming if you were an Oilers fan and this was the truth? One, okay, they let Peter Shirley handle the Miko Koskinen extension in somewhat bad faith, knowing full well that he was out the door eventually, or, or really soon, I should say. And for whatever reason, that negotiation doesn't go as planned. They wind up saddled with this three-year, $4.5 million per contract with Miko Koskinen that gets publicly ridiculed on online and pretty much in every um, nook and cranny of the hockey universe. And it's one final parting gift from Peter Shirelli. Or option two, Shirelli's the GM. He's just doing his day-to-day job. Um, it's business as normal. He signs Koskinen to a three-year contract because he believes genuinely in his heart of hearts that Miko Koskinen is the future goalie of the Edmonton Oilers at least for the next three years and this is a good value to get a guy while we can and not let him hit the open market and then the Oilers take the ice the following night and after two periods of albeit admittedly listless hockey um, 
the leadership group decides they've seen enough and kind of spontaneously and impulsively pulls the trigger and relieves Peter Shirley of his duties and completely changes their plans from what they had been initially conceiving um, as recently as 24 hours ago. Which of those is you think more likely and which one do you think would be more alarming? I, I think either of those scenarios as laid out would be extremely alarming. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that either really captures what happened they don't they don't gel completely with the official story at any at any rate and mm-hmm. i think the official story is a little bit fishy so we we can talk about that as well um for what it's worth here's the way i see it going down i i think the oilers management group whoever you include in that looked at the goalie market this summer and said oh we're, you know we're not going to get bobrovsky and the rest of that market stinks now I think that's a debatable point, but I can see how you look at it and go, you know, I don't want Jimmy Howard. I don't want Semyon Varlamov. I don't want to go with a a 1A, 1B thing. Koskinen's what I'm going to roll with, especially if your starting point is mid-December. Because in mid-December, Koskinen, I I believe he had a 930 save percentage, and, you know, everything just collapsed after that. He's got an 880 save percentage over his past 12 games. So I have to think that what happened was when they started this process, they were looking at his first uh, 16 games or whatever it was and going, yeah, yeah, this this is our guy, which is a a whole other issue and Mm -hmm. and a problem all by itself. So you start down this path and Peter Shirelli's negotiating it. And and we know that because Sportsnet's Mark Spector reported it. Mm -hmm. Um that Shirelli was the point man on negotiations. And so the team goes in the tank um, over this, this 12-game stretch, and uh, you start having discussions about firing the GM. And you try to decide when to do it. You, you see the 10-day 10, 10 break coming up, and you go, okay, that's, that's the time to do it. And, but, but you know what? We're going to let him finish Koskinen because, as a group, we feel that that's still a good decision. This is a too good a deal to pass up. We can't possibly risk it. <laughs> Which is a whole other issue. Right. But but here's the wrinkle with that because because if that's the story and and that to me is the is that's how I interpret what's been presented officially. That's not that crazy beyond the Koskinen contract itself and deciding that's a good idea. But the process itself isn't that crazy beyond that choice. But the wrinkle with it is that. Nicholson says they decided before the Detroit game to fire Shirelli and they let him know at the second intermission. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue with that, um, for those who didn't see the Detroit game or don't know what happened, it, it ended up 3-2, which doesn't look that bad. But Detroit was the last place team coming in. And at the midway point of the second period, the shots were 20-11 for Detroit. And it was a 2-0 Detroit lead. And the Oilers were having the boots taken to them. And then the Oilers kind of pushed back and made it a little bit respectable. So the thing I, I just I can't help wondering in my in the back of my mind is did somebody get a text message midway through the second period of this terrible game against a terrible team coming off two miserable losses over the weekend saying, get that guy out of here now. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't rule that I I mean I have no information that says that happened. That's just in the back of my head, I can't help wondering because the official idea that you fired him going into this ten day break and you waited until the second intermission of the Detroit game, why not just do it the next morning if that's your plan? Why not do it before the Detroit game if that's your plan? I, in, in, no, in no place in my mind does it make sense to me that you, uh, you decide this coolly and logically and you do it mid-game. Maybe there's a scenario where that makes sense, but I, I just I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. No, I love the... Um, because obviously we'll never... I, I imagine there's a select few people that really do know the true unadulterated timeline and and the full sort of impetus and and final straw behind this and for us on the outside we kind of need to piece it together and sort of do a little bit of detective work and and try to you know use some critical thinking of our own but you're right i mean it does the timing does seem a little bit fishy and and i don't necessarily want to relitigate peter shirelli's tenure at edmonton i mean we're going to get into some of the moves obviously but i think it's generally um considered to have been a massive disappointment and especially the way this year is gone. I mean, they're only a couple points out of a playoff spot, but it's clearly been a very underwhelming year that's resulted in a coach firing and a bunch of turmoil and um, all of the same issues that have been going on for a while now kind of resurfacing. So I understand from that point of view why this move would have made. And if anything, I think people are generally pretty surprised that it took this long and they were as loyal to Peter Shirelli as they were for as long as they were. Um, 
but yeah, I, I didn't ultimately see much uh, reporting in the way of, and maybe that's just not how hockey reporting works these days, but not much speculation that, you know, oh, I'm hearing news that Peter Shirley could be on the way out. Like it, it definitely, as that game was um, un- unraveling and the Oilers were just looking so helpless and everyone was just making fun of them online and losing at home and looking so poor to one of the worst teams in the league. Um, Then we kind of got Ryan Rashad come out and go like, you know, I'm hearing that Peter Shirley is not long for this job. Like any, it's not a matter of when it's a matter. uh, And it's not a matter if it's a matter of when. And then Mark Spector saying there was a 40, 60 chance that even makes it through the all-star break. And, and so then we kind of saw that process really expedited. But before that, I hadn't heard much other than, you know, snippets here. There were people really making fun of some of his moves. Yeah, I, I so about a week, let's see, he was fired on, I don't know, seven or eight days before he was fired. I wrote a piece saying that the Oilers had to make a decision on Peter Shirelli at the All-Star break. Mm-hmm. And and I, made, I laid out the case that his moves were so bad, and you don't want him handling these decisions at the trade deadline. Um, Koskinen was one of the things I had in my head when I wrote it. <laughs> but when I wrote that, I hadn't seen anything else out there. And I wasn't writing it from a position of, oh, you know what, I hear that this is going to happen. I was just thinking, okay, you've got the 10-day break coming up. You're going to have your team meetings. If you're going to make the move, why not make it now, do an extensive search, etc. But I didn't really believe it was going to happen. And then in the week that followed, I saw there there was an increased amount of criticism of Shirelli in the media. Mm. And a lot of it from people, like, there's always been this rabid... Um, group of Oilers fans who's thinking I largely agree with who never bought into the Shirelli philosophy. So the people who are like, you know, the Griffin Reinhardt trades a firing offense, you know, <laughs> two months after he got the job. Um, but I, and that they, they never bought in and they never stopped criticizing Shirelli's moves. But I, I do think that was a minority. And, and the shift in tone for me was in, in the media that was normally pretty quiet um, not taking a stance one way or the other. They started being increasingly critical that last week. And the out-of-town media, which has always been far more critical, ramped up their criticism. And even in the market, one of the little bellwethers for me was watching people who'd kind of said, oh, well, you know, they had to make the Hall-Larsen move because they needed the defense and and uh, Hall's a locker room cancer, yada, 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 started transitioning from, that's not a bad move, to, you know what, you're beating a dead horse. Everybody knows that's a bad move. Let's move on. And and when that transition happens, I, I, I start, it's a, it's a bit of a bellwether for me. But having said all that, the news that he was actually going to get canned, it wasn't until basically that last day or two. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, if you were in that um, ladder camp of people that initially were buying in and when he came into Edmonton, you thought he was the right man for the job and you kept pointing to his, uh, you know, his success and the Stanley, ultimately, ultimately the Stanley Cup victory in Boston and sort of, um, you know, buying into this plan he made and then when they made the playoffs and there was a lot of, um, you know, chest thumping and, and congratulations and, and people going, uh, oh, maybe some of the moves he made were the correct ones. And, and so if you were in that camp and then all of a sudden you change your mind, I'd be just very curious, like what the final tipping point was and what um, the move that acted as the final straw was where you're like, OK, this is a fireable offense. I've seen enough. Like, I'd be very fascinated to know what that fine line was and where what set people over the top, because, you know, as bad as I ultimately think that Mikko Koskinen extension is, I don't think it's necessarily like. Um, you know, it's not going to kill a franchise by any means. It's, it's, it speaks to bigger issues and a lack of understanding about certain concepts. And I think that's alarming for a GM more so than pointing at Miko Koskin and being like, okay, the Oilers are not, not going to be able to compete over the next three years because of this Albatross contract. Like I, I think those are two separate, um, competing thoughts. Well, all, yeah, I, I think, uh, <sighs> It's difficult to to look back at it because we all are sort of tinged by our own experience and and remember what we remember rather than necessarily the whole picture. But I I think there were a lot of people, like when you watch the press conference after they trade Hall for Larson, I think um, it was pretty critical. And uh, I remember uh, Spectre in particular asking a question, and and I I don't remember what the question was, but it was something about, you know, losing losing value in a trade to make a, a 
a move that needed to be made for the team. And and the way it was asked, I remember Shirelli kind of looking at him and going, are, are, you, are you saying I lost the trade? And, and, and before giving the rest of his answer. So I, I think there was a lot of criticism generally. But what happened was in 2016-17, it w- everything went right, and it was such a such a, a a strong performance from a team that had never done it before. Yep. That I think people who were on the fence kind of said, "Oh, well, you know what? I didn't come out strongly against this trade, so I'm I'm not committed publicly." Or you know, I had mis I, I wasn't sure. You know, I didn't think it was right, but but Peter Shirelli made it, and I respect him. I respect his record in Boston and how good those Bruins teams were. And and maybe I was wrong. And so whatever doubts there were kind of got quashed that year, um, at least publicly. Yeah, I don't, I, you know, sometimes I think we can be definitely guilty of this on hockey Twitter where there is, um, it can be an echo chamber and, and there is a lot of confirmation bias, right? Where it's like, depending on our initial view of the person making the move, if we like that GM, um, we're going to view the move through this kind of like rose tinted glasses and we're going to try to justify it. Whereas if it's someone like Peter Shirelli, who uh, we like to publicly ridicule and, and, and make fun of the moves or question the moves he's made, Anything he does, even if it's ultimately a reasonable move, I think there's going to be a certain segment of people that are just going to make fun of it and, and use it as an excuse to bring back some of his past moves. But I think in this case, um, you know, I don't even think it's the benefit of hindsight. I think no. looking at the laundry list of uh, of missteps during his couple of years in Edmonton, um, it's just so extensive and so expansive that it ultimately is a, a really tough thing to overcome and save face from. And, and, you know, it's funny, I was, I was in prepping for this podcast, I was going through the archives and I was looking at um, some of the past 10 years before Peter Shirelli. And I highly recommend checking out the uh, Oilers Wikipedia page for uh, their GMs because <laughs> it clearly someone's uh, gotten their hands on it and had a little fun with it and in uh, giving the synopsis of each GM's tenure and sort of the main accomplishments of it. And the Peter Shirelli one is particularly ruthless, ruthless, but you know, I was looking back at the, uh, at the at the Tambellini one before that, and what struck me was obviously the moves themselves um, aren't as glaring as signing Milan Lucic and trading uh, Taylor Hall for um, Adam Larson or even the Eberle for Strom to Spooner to waiver fodder downgrade. They're not as kind of blatantly obviously bad as that, but there's so many... Um, moves of this that I think he's like the, he was the king of the subtly losing a seemingly throwaway deal where it was like trading Luba Varishnovsky for Ryan Whitney or just dumping guys like Riley, Riley Nash and Andrew, Andrew Cogliano you know trading a, a relatively useful pick for Mark Fistrick like Nick Schultz for Tom Gilbert uh, Patrick O'Sullivan for Eric Cole there's all these moves where it's like on the surface none of them were as bad as anything Shirelli really did but just the sheer volume of them and how it ultimately took its toll and if you combine that with the McTavish uh, years where you know they give up on guys like Dubnik and Gagne finally and Jeff Petrie especially um, some of those moves not to uh, justify or defend Peter Shirley by any means but it speaks to a larger issue with this older franchise in terms of how they've drafted how they've developed how they've managed their assets and it ultimately kind of came to roost when you look at this team now um, and there's just not that much support around their best handful of players. And that's ultimately been their undoing. And that's a big reason why Peter Shirelli himself was let go. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm going to quibble just a little bit here. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned Tambellini because I was, so one of my, my law, for those of you who don't know, I, I keep a, a record of, of Oilers interviews and trans like just transcribed, which is running, I think 150,000 words now. And it goes back to midpoint of 2014. So one of the things I've tried to do over the years is, when I have time, go back and add little bits. And so I've been rewatching Oil Change. And uh, that, for those who don't know, that's the, um, not, not propaganda exactly. It's, it's actually really well done. It's a, it's a documentary about the Oilers rebuild, starting with Steve Tambellini. And it's presented in a fairly team-friendly way, but you get a remarkable amount of candid quotes. And so I was watching this the other day, and um, Steve Tambellini and uh, his brain trust are, are going into the 2010 offseason and they're talking about their priorities. And one of the big things is they got to get an enforcer because they got all these young kids on the way and you, <laughs> you can't have these guys on their back and, and everybody's talking about it. And, and maybe they, they, you get five minutes of clips of them debating the merits of the relative enforcers and, and what they're going to do for them. And uh, 
they're getting rid of Sheldon Surrey because he's a character problem, and, and they're going to bring in Curtis Foster, and, and there's a clip of Pierre Maguire freaking out because, you know, Calgary's going to have a hard time matching that because Curtis Foster's got a booming shot. He's a great person. <laughs> and, and, and they're laughing in the room going, okay, yeah, yay us. <laughs> Look at the reviews. Yeah. But, but I mention all this because character was one of the things that got harped on incessantly over the Steve Tambellini era. And, and character is one of those things that came up again in the Bob Nicholson presser um, when Shirelli was let go. And it's, it's sort of a recurring theme, oddly enough, not necessarily as much through Shirelli's tenure as through every other GM. It's an organizational bugaboo. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's been so much emphasis on it that it's always an alarm bell when you hear it because if this has been their priority all down the line and it's still a problem, either they're just terrible at assessing it and they should stop because they can't do it or it's not really the issue and you know pick pick your poison there well i mean listen to bob nicholson's comments and obviously there's only so much you can really glean from them there's only so much that um it makes sense for him to really reveal anyways but i mean just that idea that they were harping on needing to bring in more character and more leadership to surround mcdavid with like Ultimately, on the surface, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, yeah, you all, you prioritize having good hair character over bad character, and having leadership is great. I mean, a lot of the best teams in the world have a ton of leadership, but it's like when you're prioritizing that over actual skill or contributions on the ice and looking over certain other characteristics just because a guy is a good guy, um, that's how you have some of the issues the others have had. And, and no, you're right. I mean, that's why my other unanswerable question beyond the uh, Miko Koskinen one and, and who handled that extension and sort of why it was done the way it was done is how much does this leadership slash ownership group meddle and, and how much of the issues that we saw um, during the Shirelli era will persist even with this new GM, the GM they eventually bring into place unless it is a guy who comes in with enough gravitas where he can basically push them to the side and just do whatever he wants. Like, I mean it's easy to make fun of Shirelli and everything he did wrong. And, and I think we can't make enough of the fact that they got Connor McDavid and haven't capitalized on that, especially throughout his entry level contract. But this stretches well beyond that. I mean, you've got the one playoff appearance in the past 12 seasons. Um, and that doesn't even include this year where they'll probably miss it again. I mean, they've only had the one year and that was 2016, 17. They made the playoffs where they had over 90 points. It's, it's just, we're coming up on, what, like 12, 13 years now of um, sheer and utter incompetence and, and um, underwhelming results. And so when you have, whenever you have that, it's not just one person to blame, I feel like. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess the way I look at it, maybe it's just because I'm... Uh, I, when, I was in the, when I was in the oil patch way back when, before I was a, a hockey writer... Back when that was my hobby and oil patch was my work. Back when you were um, making an honest living. <laughs> back when I was making real money, actually. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I, I did was repaired various uh, rental equipment. And um, a lot of times it would come back from the field pretty beat up, uh, a lot of problems with it. And you'd run it through its paces and you'd find a major problem, you'd fix it, and then it still wouldn't run. You'd find another major problem and then you'd find another major problem. But they weren't connected. They were three or four different significant problems that you had to fix but they uh the causes were different and and i think that applies when you look at edmonton because it's, it's one thing to say you know we got to get all these guys out of the way but in a, in a in a sense they they really have um you know you look at the tambellini era you look at the the masthead of, of names on on the uh the management roles there he cleared out a bunch of the the low loyalists that were there before him um, they brought Craig McTavish back. He brought Scott Hausen back. He uh, did a couple of other things. But McTavish only had a couple of years in the post. And I'm, I'm not defending him because his record was not good. Mm-hmm. But the team Shirelli inherited was pretty well set up. Like, you look at that team in, even in 2015-16, like, you've got Hall, you've got Eberle. Um, Pouliot had 36 points in 55 games. Um and, and then Peter Shirelli had just brought in Andre Sekera and Patrick Maroon. And, and the Sekera thing went badly, not really through any fault of his own. Yeah. Um, Justin Schultz was there. The development was bad, but he was there. And, and of course, um, I, I don't really blame Shirelli for how that went down for, for a bunch of reasons, mostly because Pittsburgh didn't actually qualify Justin Schultz. They were able to re-sign him later at a lower rate, and that's not something Edmonton could have done. Yeah. Um, 
but but my point in all of this is that when Shirelli came into the job, there's actually a pretty good supporting cast there, and he augmented it outside of the Reinhardt deal, which was a, a disaster on so many levels. But he augmented it that first year. I think Shirelli really had the table set for him by both the McDavid draft and the the um, the team that Craig McTavish left him with a few you know salary cap problems like Anton. Um, Andrew Ference and, and Mark Fain and, right. and those sorts of things. But but I think the table was set, and the failures of the Chiarelli era really do come on Chiarelli. Kevin Lowe has been on the business side basically since Chiarelli came in. Um, Craig McTavish is there, but he got demoted. He got sidelined. His guys were railroaded, sent to the minors. Um, basically, his work was all undone. So I, I, I can't look at that and say, oh, boy, Craig McTavish sure is pulling the strings there. Uh, Scott Housen actually basically got sent home. He was still under contract. He did pro scouting for them. He was in an advisory role. And when he got brought back, it wasn't in a, a anything really beyond a uh, uh, player development role. So he's liaising with their their minor league talent. So when when people say you know it it has to go beyond the GM, it does. It does. the The organization is flawed. Um, and has been flawed for a decade. But when they brought Bob Nicholson in, he did his forensic audit. He got a year. They made him the CEO. They gave him the power. He brought in Peter Shirelli. They made him the GM and the president. They gave him the power. The failures post-2015 are on Peter Shirelli and to, you know, to a lesser extent, the cast surrounding him, particularly if you're looking at the Reinhardt trade. And Bob Nicholson. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just, when Nicholson says there's something in the water, I kind of, I, I, I shake my head a little because no no the the failures of the past were real failures and a real problem but they're distinct from the failures of the Shirelli regime and I, I don't see a common link between them beyond the fact that Kevin Lowe is still employed by the organization in some capacity and, and I don't think that's credible yeah you know what <laughs> the one the one move that really sticks in my craw and obviously there is much more impactful and and uh uh, severe moves that you can charge uh, to Peter Shirley's resume, but the Al Montoya saga um, never <laughs> just, I don't know why, but that one just bugs me so much just from a pure asset management perspective because it just speaks to like a lack of, um, I guess, like attention to detail or, or uh, embrace of small but valuable assets in, in the sense that, you know, they're going through this um, shaky season and, and, Cam Talbot clearly can't hold up to the workload that he had the year prior when he'd been so amazing for them. And so they go out and Laurent Brostra was struggling at the time and they go out and they bring in Al Montoya, who's a proven backup and, and that's all well and good. And they give up a conditional fifth round pick for him. But then, you know, the season's lost. They realize they're not going to make the playoffs. And instead of just cutting their losses and saying, okay, we're going to give up this fifth round pick. It, it is what it is. You know, it was a, I guess a bad bet on our part. Um, they play him for that seventh game and that contract kicks in where they all of a sudden have to make that a fourth round pick. And I believe that happened in like on like March 18th or something of last year during a season when at that point there was absolutely no reason to be playing out Montoya because they were already out of it. And it just, and then, you know, obviously that kind of helps push and his own play in Edmonton certainly didn't help his cause, but it helped push Lauren Brosso out the door. And now he's become this dominant backup in Winnipeg. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, no one could have really foreseen that coming other than the fact that they've clearly, I don't know, put him in a position as a he's playing in front of a, playing with a great team in front of him. And it's a different circumstance, but just, you put all that together and it was just like this one little instance of like, it was just such an unnecessary little thing. And, it just drives me crazy when GMs do that. And here in Vancouver, uh, Jim Benning has done that all the time. And just sort of this lack of um, acknowledgement that picks like a fourth or a fifth or a sixth round pick matter in the grand scheme of things and just throwing them away. Let's like when you're a team that has struggled to draft and develop quality volume of guys in the later rounds, you should be hoarding those picks and increasing your odds of doing so as opposed to just casting them to the side because they don't matter seemingly. Was it you who uh, was laughing the other day at the... Um the Jamie Ben trade that Peter Shirelli made. Oh my god! So and this is also like it's unfair to Shirelli because obviously some of these picks, like I think the the Griffin Reinhardt trade where they gave up a first and that first round of the yeah, that, that's now, a totally different story. Like obviously. that that is like I, I've had Oilers fans and and Peter Shirelli apologists come back at me and go who's to say the Oilers would have even taken Mark Barzal? Mark Barzal. And it's like, okay, well, if they wouldn't have, then that speaks to an also bigger problem because 
he Look, was we're very, bad at drafting anyway, Dimitri. Yeah. We can't keep the first. Yeah, it's like this isn't like a guy who like you know the the Islanders picked out of nowhere. Like everyone knew him. He had, if anything, he'd fallen down the draft, and it was pretty clear that you know at that point he was an incredible value. And it's like if your team wasn't going to take him and they were going to take someone worse instead, I don't understand how that's a defense of the uh, the management group. But it's like that's a, an, an example of its own. But then if you look at Peter Shirley's resume, especially back in Boston, there's so many moves where um, he wound up trading picks that wound up being awesome players like i believe the uh when he traded for thomas caberley that pick wound up being ricard raquel uh he traded for adam mcquade and that pick uh wound up being jamie ben and and so on and so forth and there's so many like if you just look at and this speaks to the fact that shirelli's been in the game and managing teams for as long as he has and when you had the good fortune of doing so you're clearly going to have a lot of talent coming into and out of your roster hopefully but um he his trade tree is remarkable because there has been so much freaking superstar talent that could have conceivably been on Peter Shirley teams that wound up being traded for for basically what amounted to spare parts. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I there's a there's a joke. Um, I think Cam Thompson, who used to write for Reverend Euler fans, uh, came up. Uh, mentioned it he talks about the peter shirelli forward academy uh, which is you know phil castle and blake wheeler and yep. taylor hall and all these guys but I, I wanted to focus in on the the jamie ben thing because it's a good example of how these little moves get you um so there's nothing wrong with trading a fifth round pick for a serviceable nhl defenseman in adam McQuaid. that was that was a totally reasonable trade and there's no reason at all to get upset that you know um, Jamie Ben was ultimately selected with the, the fifth round pick that went that way. But it, it speaks to what fifth round picks and, and assets of that nature are. They're lottery, they're lottery tickets. And um, if you treat them like they're garbage, because a lot of the times they, they come up empty, eventually you get burned. And that's not an example of that. But you look at, uh, you, you mentioned Montoya. That's, that's a good example of that. Um, the Alex Petrovic trade with Florida. That's a good example of that. Oh, sorry, the Chris Weidman trade with Ottawa. That's arguably a good example of that. Although, you know, maybe there's a case there. But but the point is, you have to value all your assets. All this stuff at the margin matters. And attention to detail is one of those things that drives you nuts because these guys are making massive money and they have, you know, whole front offices that do nothing but sit down and talk and think and plan hockey and watch hockey. And the, the fact that they're making these little nothing moves and they're they're so dumb on the surface is maddening. Uh, my example from the Shirelli era that kills me is the Eric Graba buyout. Like, the guy makes $900,000. That's an entirely variable American League contract. Now it's a $300,000 cap hit for two years because they bought him out to save three hundred grand. And, uh, you know, from a financial perspective, either they're really nickel and diamond it, or somebody wanted to, I, what, what's been suggested to me at some point is, well, they wanted to give Griba a chance to, uh, to, to go spread his wings because he's a good guy. And then at the other end, well, they didn't want Griba and the miners around their kids. That's a bad apple. And I, I don't care which of those three explanations you use. They're all dumb. You don't add cap hit for no reason when you're desperate for every penny. It's... Uh, it's this this bleeding at the edges is just the kind of thing that makes you go why am i paying that executive a seven-figure salary yeah i mean money's clearly tight in edmonton i mean you know they only had 42 million dollars to give to milan lucic and another 16 to chris russell i mean it's when you're devoting vital resources to that i mean there's no room for eric ribe at nine hundred thousand or whatever both character ads i would i would point out oh too. for sure no this is a team overflowing with character i mean it's uh it's well it's yeah, you know the, so like the, the when you look at the worst contracts in edmonton recent past usually they're guys that were added for their character and leadership among other things yeah but i mean russell's russell's a guy who teammates clearly love him and and always get cited for good character i have no reason to argue with that lucic is a guy who uh, peter shirelli saw for years and years in boston has always praised his character he comes across uh, you know i don't have any way to judge this i'm not in there but uh in his interviews he comes across as a real character guy i think andrew ference is somebody who's regarded by most people i mean maybe not so much in edmonton now in the edmonton fan base but generally speaking regarded as a good character individual and uh it, it just goes back to when you're emphasizing that maybe 
maybe make sure the hockey stuff's buttoned down too. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jonathan, when we finish recording, please remind me to uh, message the evolving wild guys to add a, uh, add a variable for a character in their goals above replacement metric. Well, I feel like that's what goals above replacement has really been missing is a, is a character variable. It's true. It's hard to take it seriously until we have that accounted for. Um, let's take a quick break to hear from a sponsor. We're going to, uh, keep going with this uh, forensic audit of our own uh, after the break. Sponsoring today's episode of the Hockey PDO cast is SeatGeek. SeatGeek knows that getting tickets online can be far too complicated. With hundreds of websites and varying levels of reliability, it's hard to know who to trust out there. And that's why SeatGeek's the way to go, because they are going to take all of that guesswork and all of that frustration out of the equation for you by doing all the work for you. SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. They know there's nothing quite like being there in person, and they're going to help, as a result, get you closer to action for a great value. SeatGeek's designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever before by searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value. SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. They've got this color-coded map that grades all the seats available based on value, and obviously you're looking for green. The red ones are the ones you probably want to stay away, stay away from, and it makes it a lot easier for you because even if you go into it um, knowing that you want to go to an event but you're not necessarily sure where you want to sit or where the best vantage point is going to be, um, they're going to help you figure that out and, and make sure that you're paying paying um, the right amount of money for the seats that you're getting. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed with them, so you can shop on SeatGeek with full confidence knowing that what you're paying for is what you're going to get. All of that is are reasons why you need to make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source for everything from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. The other thing is that, as my listener, you're also going to get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. To claim that and get in on the fun, just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code PDO today. That's promo code PDO for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. I've gotten countless uh, pictures and tweets and, and messages from you guys telling me that you've used the code to go and check out an event and had a good time, and I always love hearing from you. I, I recently had someone come to me and tell me that... Um, you know, my, the podcast and, and the, these SeatGeek reads inspire them to finally go check out their first live hockey event since 1974. So that's uh, that's pretty incredible. And I'm happy that I could facilitate that. And hopefully um, it'll help, you know, motivate you and push you in the right direction to go out there and have some fun yourself. Um, so go check out the SeatGeek. Uh, all you have to do is just get the app. It's super simple. Make sure you let them know we sent you and you're going to be having a great night out of the game. With that out of the way, um, let's get back to Jonathan Willis and the Hockey PDO cast. Okay, um, so I know you've written about this, and I want to get I wanted to kind of unpack it and get into it here. And it's sort of the pros and cons of uh, you know rushing to make a move and pick a new GM now versus waiting until the summer, and also just the general concept of the blueprint and sort of how you go about fixing this. And and if you are the new person coming in into Edmonton to take tasks with um, you know cleaning up the mess Shirley left and and making a contender out of this and capitalizing on having Connor McDavid on your roster, um, what moves you would go about prioritizing and how you would go about fixing this mess. So let's kind of unpack those one by one. And uh, I guess let's start with the concept of picking the GM and sort of what you're looking for and um, the timeline for it. Because obviously, um, you know, I, I imagine there's going to be uh I, I think they're probably going to wait till the summer right like you, you open the door for a bigger pool of candidates and you really give yourself more time to get a better sense of um how the market's shaping up and also how to best delicately take those next steps yeah i i don't know that they'll necessarily wait till the summer i i think it it's going to depend on you know who they're allowed to talk to and what they're allowed to do, but but obviously you start the search right away and you take you let it take as long as it takes. I think that's that's the big thing, and I think that's something that um, Bob Nicholson stressed in his his availability. And I, you know, he seems sincere to me. I I, I think he he knows that that he wants to take his time and get this right. What I'm looking for, and and to me, it goes beyond just the GM. You want to set up a certain kind of front office because. The fact is, no one person knows everything that needs to be known. If you you, you need um, a strong group and you need varied backgrounds, so I look at Tampa Bay, for example. Um, Tampa Bay brought in a director of statistical analysis from outside hockey. 
Um, when Steve Eiserman set that up, he poached Julianne Brisebois, who was, you know, at the time, one of the top young executives, non-traditional hockey background, um, but but uh, doing good work with Montreal's farm team, brought him in. Mm-hmm. He brought in, he kept some people from the Tampa Bay staff he inherited, not many, but a handful, uh, brought in Al Murray, who was incredibly respected as a director of scouting, um, Longtime King Scout, he was in sort of a, a mini exile with Hockey Canada, but he brought him back to Tampa. Uh, and and what he did was he constructed a front office with a bunch of different viewpoints, and then he was capable of synthesizing that information. You look at what happened in Toronto; very similar things happened in Toronto with the the management set up there. And that's to me what you have to look for is you have to find somebody in the GM position who is not going to be who's going to be more of a consensus builder than a, uh, a unilateral decision maker. And you have to surround him with top-end people. You have to invest heavily in analytics. It's not the only thing you have to do, but you have to do that. You have to, And I mean, people will say, well, the, the Oilers use analytics. And they do. But you have to invest in people who know what they mean. Yes. You can't have the GM walking out and giving press conferences where he, he lists off Nick Cronwall and Chris Russell as the two best outlet passers in the NHL. <laughs> because when you're doing that, you don't understand what the numbers are telling you. Yeah. Um, so you have to invest in that department. But you also have to have just good traditional assessment methods. Um, your scouting director's got to be somebody who knows what they're doing. You're... Your pro scouts have to be people who know what they're doing. You have to have bright minds with different backgrounds who can give you different things, and then you have to listen to them all. Um, one of the things with the 80s Oilers, I actually think there's some decent hockey minds in that group. I'm, I'm going to get shredded for this, but you look at Kevin Lowe's track record as GM. It's mixed. It's really not that bad. But the problem is when you have four guys who are on the 1980s Oilers and they all come with that mindset, no matter how open-minded they are, that's a lot of redundancy in, in one line of thinking. Um, so to me, that's what it comes down to. You want to find somebody who's a consensus builder, open to different viewpoints and has to surround him with good people, him or her with good people. Yes. I would say, uh, the first criteria should be expanding your search beyond, um, looking for someone who either used to play for the Oilers, was related to someone who played for the Oilers, or is close with someone who played for the Oilers. I think... Uh, well, you, you look at the names that have popped up, though. I mean, it's it's guys like Mark Hunter. It's guys like Kelly McCrimmon. Yep. It's guys like Lawrence Gilman and Mike Gillis. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that is something... If, if these if these names are more than just you know that media person's contact list, um, if, if those names are based on sort of what the thinking is inside the office, I, I, I think that's something they understand. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of interesting names there, and I think they're all um, viable candidates and would be upgrades, to be honest. I mean, even uh, Elliot Freeman has 31 thoughts throughout the potential of Ron Hextall, and I'm not sure, um, you know, both personally, whether he would want to take more time off after uh, having recently been let go from the Flyers, or, or whether that makes sense just because he has has been um in his one i guess example of of taking on a job like that he's been very um sort of passive and, and patient and that would be that, that, that would be that would be a, that that's be, how we describe ron hextall <laughs> passive and patient it's, it's, I, know, so, sorry, it's I, I, I don't i don't want to interrupt i, I just i have to tell this story yeah. um Back back in my oil patch days again, when I was doing this as a hobby, I, I wrote a piece which had Hextall as one of the next next good front office guys to watch. And my my boss's boss called me up the next day and he said, "John, what are you doing? Hextall's a hothead. He's an idiot. You can't hire him to be a GM. That's a dumb piece. You're bad at this. Just stick to selling oil field chemical." Um, so anyway, sorry. That's sorry awesome. Tangent. That's awesome. And it's it's true. I mean, uh, until we saw him uh, run the job, there would have been no reason to believe that. Uh, he would be that way, but he certainly was, and I'm not sure if that's a, you know, a lasting character trait of his as a GM now all of a sudden, or whether it was just um, because of the circumstance he was in. But that's an interesting name to consider as well, and obviously uh, near and dear to my heart is is, uh, is the combination, the one-two punch of Mike Gillis and Lawrence yes. Gilman, and, and uh, I am chomping at the bit to see them uh, get another chance. I mean, obviously Lawrence is, I'm sure, enjoying his time with the uh, Leafs organization and running the Marlies right now and doing great things there and and um i've been on the record and on this podcast talking many times singing his praises and and gillis himself as well i know that uh towards the end of his time in vancouver there were some bridges burned and there were some uh, bad feelings around the league but i think enough time has passed and if anything well, i'm not sorry. well i'm not sure how how uh history outside of or how um the general perception outside of vancouver is um in terms of now that enough time has passed how you view that regime in that era of the Canucks, but it's pretty clear having covered that team very closely that, um, you know, himself and Lawrence Gilman were 
definitely on the cutting edge of exploring a lot of this stuff that now we're kind of taking for granted a little bit. And they were kind of pushing the envelope and really trying to find new creative ways to make the Canucks better and exploit all of those little market inefficiencies. And, um, you know, the league's caught up a little bit, but I mean, I'd be very fascinated to see sort of what they did next to try and keep that going and try and find new creative ways to get better now that uh, the league has started looking at stuff like zone starts and, and sports science and all this stuff, which back in like 2010 was uh, considered to be niche. So this is this is audio, so people don't know this. But my my screen on my computer right now, when when Dimitri mentioned um, Gillis and Gilman, is just the the Jack Nicholson anger management gif where he's nodding. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that would be great. Uh, I, I like the record. Um, Gilman's an interesting guy for Edmonton specifically because, of course, he did a, a stint with the then Phoenix Coyotes Mm -hmm. when Wayne Gretzky and Keith Gretzky were involved there. So there's perhaps a bit of an in-house knowledge of him that um, might make it an easier fit. And Gilman is also, uh, by trade, a numbers guy. Uh, not, oh, in terms, yeah, yeah, not in terms yeah. of analytics i mean he's open to it but in terms of like purely like being a, cap a guy and, and yeah and sort of uh massaging that cap wisely and and really trying to squeeze every single uh ounce of value out of every single penny they're spending and being creative in that regard and and i think uh especially after the shirelli regime ha- bringing someone in who would actually be looking at that sort of stuff and trying to maximize value and figuring out ways how to best optimize the roster around uh, a couple of highly paid guys like Connor McDavid and Leandre Seidel, um, that would be a fascinating approach to take because it would be so divergent from what they we'd seen from them over the past couple of years. Well, I, I've always really respected the job that Gillis did in Vancouver. And uh, of course, Gilman had a radio, regular radio uh, slot for a bit there before he landed in yep. Toronto. And I, like, I've never spoken to, to Lawrence Gilman. I, I don't know him from Adam, but uh, his listen, listening to the... I, I really respect his, his the way he thinks about hockey, and I, I think he'd be an extremely. I, I, I thought Toronto was extremely smart to add him in an assistant GM role. He's a guy I'd have no qualms about really, really considering for a, a main GM role. And the other thing I want to add in here, because I think it gets talked about a lot, and probably gets talked about too much. And I, I, I don't care what the league perception of a guy is. Like, yeah, Mike Gillis, if I was a GM in the league, if I was uh, Buffalo's GM when they made the Cody Hodgson, uh, Zach Cassian trade, I'd have been livid at the way Gillis was up there strutting about his pump and dump with Cody Hodgson. Mm -hmm. But you know what? If you're hiring a GM, who cares? You don't have to get along with these guys. You just have to do business with them. You know who has a great relationship with other NHL GMs? Peter Shirelli. And we know that because Bob Nicholson said it last April as part of the reason he was keeping him around. And I I don't actually know if Bob Nicholson's the right guy to make this hire because of his long Hockey Canada experience. This is a guy who spent his entire professional life mingling with the hockey establishment. So I'd be concerned he'd have an establishment view. But if you're hiring a GM, who cares? There aren't that many people out there. You're going to do business with who you have to do business with. You don't all have to be friendly and chummy. And and you know what? If the hockey world was a bit less chummy, I think we'd see teams do colder, better um, decision making. Offer sheets. Offer sheets. Yes. No, but yes. you, you know what? You, you teed me up there and I, and I can't let it slide. You're so right, Jonathan. Other GMs love Peter Shirelli. They love dealing with them. They love calling with them. They love calling them. They love making trades. Peter Shirelli's got a great report on the league. I mean, he's uh, he's made a lot of GMs around the league uh, look a lot better than they are just by, by dealing with him. So you're right. Um, I'm very curious because, you know, when we're talking about picking the GM now versus waiting until the summer, generally, um, I would say at least having uh, a viable sort of bridge option or, or interim thinker that is going to align with what the person coming in in a handful of months is going to want to do would make a lot of sense. Obviously, if you don't know the specifics, it's hard to do that. But I think just generally speaking, like you don't want to just throw away the next couple months of a season just because you're going to wait and, and kind of push the ball down till till the summer. But at the same time with this Oilers team, I mean, you know, they've got Alex Chasson and, and Cam Talbot, I guess, as the two, um, although the latter is uh, value plummeting by the day, but two guys that are veteran players who are expiring contracts who would make sense to trade away for future assets and then sort of figuring out the Puliarvi situation in terms of figuring out what you really have with him and how you want to proceed the summer when he's up for an RFA contract. And it, I mean, obviously it seems like a bridge is going to happen there, but just in terms of what you, how will you think of him and how you value him as a player and putting him in a position to succeed over the next couple months, like those are sort of the big, um, 
questions that face the next GM that are very pressing right now. But in the grand scheme of things, those are pretty small compared to a lot of other instances where you'd, you know, you'd have five or six different questions that needed immediate resolving. And maybe there'd be a stronger impetus, a stronger push to bring in a, a long-term GM right away so they can handle them as opposed to what's going on in Edmonton right now. Yeah. Um, I'm, I think the pressure point for Edmonton is the draft. I was I was listening to a Brian Burke interview the other day where he said you don't need to have a GM in place for the draft. Your scouts can handle the draft. And I think that's true, but I also think that the draft floor is where a lot of the trades happen and the Oilers are going to have to make a significant trade or two to augment their forward depth. If their defense depth, they, they can do it, but their forward um, supporting cast specifically. Going into the trade deadline... I don't think it's that hard to get it right. Uh, I don't think they're going to trade Alex Chase on. They're still looking at the playoffs, and I'm fine with that, honestly, because what are you going to get, a third-round pick? Uh, well, I mean, I, we, at we, this point, I would love that over Alex Chase on, if we're well, being honest. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's true, and and this is the whole bleeding, uh, bleeding small assets thing, but I, I think they're going to keep them. To me, whatever, but I, I don't love it, but whatever. And and you know what? There's there's also value. I I hate to do this because it goes against my brand, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, I, I do think there's value in not throwing in the towel and saying, you know what? We're not we're not doing a a rebuild, a mini rebuild, a retool, any I mean, of that. We're gonna keep Jonathan, trying to win games. Do you hear yourself though? I know. You, I know. Throwing no, trading know. Alex Chasson for a third round pick is is tantamount to throwing in the towel for the season. <laughs> if if you are in that position as an organization, you need to question how you got there, but also you need to critically think. Okay, if Alex Chasson is a difference maker here. Um, maybe we're not a contender, but but here's here's the actual Alex Chason question to me. It's don't sign him to a long term contract when he's nearing thirty and shooting twenty seven percent this year. Yeah. That to me is the danger point. Um, well, so then why are you keeping him for uh, an extended playoff run this season? Is that that the rationale? No, no, they 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 just want to squeak into the playoffs. I I think that's that's the entire hockey oh, operations boy. goal for this current season is to squeak into the playoffs and 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 have a little bit of opening round money and and all the the character and development uh, arguments in favor of yeah. Making well, I the guess when you've made it once in twelve years, it's well, that, that's that's just it. Is it? It's been so negative that I really feel there's a a, a, a belief within this the organization that they have to try and do something good um, on the ice, whatever that is. And the Western Conference is such a disaster this year that I kind of shrug my shoulders and go, I, I get that. Uh, it's, it's not ideal from a long-term asset management perspective, but I don't think it's so damaging. I, like, I think the perception of the team, just generally in the level of toxicity around the team, it might be worth it to just try and, and not be... And, and you know what? The thing that makes it easier is that they can't really be big sellers anyway. Like, I, I think, yeah. what, what are you going to get for Cam Talbot? I was I was thinking about Cam Talbot trades the other day, and I'm going, well, if they retain money, maybe they could flip them to Philly for Michael Raffle. Um, like, he's not a guy who's going to have a ton of value. Uh, I, I think all they have to do in the meantime is just tinker around the edges. It wouldn't bother me at all if they were to trade, say, a third-round pick or a um, second-tier prospect for a middle six free agent rental who they are thinking about signing next year. Like that's the kind of thing I think they can do where they're not, they're, they're still being like, yep, we're going to try and make the playoffs, but we're not going to spend anything of real significance to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because as you mentioned, um, you know, they're only, I believe three points out of a wild card spot right now. They'd have to, yeah. <clears throat> they'd have to leapfrog four teams and uh, with the loser point, I think that's a bigger issue than the actual points themselves. It's just like every night, regardless of how well you're doing, it's so tough at this point of the season to make up uh, tangible ground. But you're right. I mean, the the Western Conference is... I mean, I think it's got some good teams, but obviously the fact that we're talking at, at the bottom end of it that a, a team like Edmonton could sneak in speaks to um, the lack of depth. And I don't know, I just look at the overall package and, you know, they're 25th in point percentage. They've got a minus 19 yep. goal differential. They're 24th in shot share and 23rd in expected goals. And that's conveniently enough, both at five on five and overall. And it's it's a team that pretty much any way you slice and dice it is a bottom I don't know, 10 team. And it's such a shame because, you know, they have 139 goals as a team and McDavid's factored into 51.8% of them. 
and he's directly created by a primary point, 43% of them, which is something that we've never really seen, I it's believe, insane. in uh, in the uh, modern, I guess, 2006 on analytics era. And no. so it's, it's, it's tough because when you have Connor McDavid um, sneaking into the playoffs, at least you have like a puncher's chance that he's just going to go absolutely uh, supernova and single-handedly carry you to at least a couple victories. And who knows, maybe Miko Koskinen or Cam Talbot um, gets reinvigorated and gets hot, and all of a sudden uh, you have got a first-round upset, especially, uh, I imagine, against a team like Calgary in a Battle of Alberta. That would be a, a very tantalizing thought. But at the same time, it's like... I don't know if if Alex Chasson is the difference maker here. I think you have bigger <laughs> fish to fry, and I would just—it's easy for me to say, but uh, I would kind of look ahead and try to, uh, you know, maybe lose this uh, lose this battle, but try to win the war in the years to come. The the so the thing about the Western Wild Card race, there's about seven teams there that I have very little regard for, but two of them are going to make it. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, who's to say Edmonton? Like, maybe it'll be Anaheim. Maybe it'll be Vancouver. Those are those are not exactly powerhouses. Well, the insane uh, thing is, there's a very like real case to be made that Edmonton is the most talented team out of all of those. That, that, that's exactly it. I look at it and I go, "Why not Edmonton?" And then I just think about like we 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 were talking. You were talking earlier about how you know there's some larger problem in Edmonton beyond Peter Shirelli, and I. And I, I argued with you, but I think that your perception is 100% the perception around the league and within the market. And, and not that a playoff appearance is going to fix that, but I think if they can have a decent 30-game run here, it will um, do a lot to sort of quell the negativity and buy them a little bit of time as they, they try and rebuild this team around McDavid. And, I, I mean... Yeah, they've got a minus 19 goal differential. They're not a very good team. Anaheim's one point out. They've got a minus 33 goal differential. It's just, it's such a mess, and the cost is so low. And beyond that, I don't think it matters what you want to do as a GM. I think the ownership has decided well, what's going to happen with this team. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you can, you know, I'm of two minds, obviously. You're right. Uh, I imagine there's such a sour taste in the mouth right now that you would want to do anything to try and, um, you know, just karmically change change the direction of things at the same time i'm not sure like potentially just getting uh absolutely destroyed in a four game sweep by winnipeg or yeah. whatever in round one like i'm not sure if that's the best way to go into the summer as well right like it's like i don't but know it's it's better than than having the one playoff appearance in 13 years as the the tagline right yeah like, maybe it's 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 still not it's still not a good way to go but i think what edmonton has in its favor like their whole swoon that got um Peter Shirelli fired, started when Oscar Clefbaum got hurt. Mm-hmm. Also, when Chris Russell got hurt. <laughs> as, as which uh, of those is the more of, valuable one? Who yes, knows? yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. There's no way to but, prove but, it. But the thing is, you have Clefbaum come back after the break. Um, is it really that inconceivable? The state of the Western Conference. You get Clefbaum back. Maybe you trade a I don't know. Say you trade a third round pick for Richard Panic, and, and Richard Panic is not, you know, anything all that special, but. But all of a sudden, maybe that gives you the opportunity to run um, a second, a first and a second line. Because when you look at who the wingers have been on those first and second lines, they're awful. I don't think you need good, great wingers to make a McDavid line and a dry side of line work. But you do need competent wingers, and the Oilers haven't had that. Um, like, well, there you go. Ryan Spooner and Ty, Ty Ratty both cleared waivers on Monday, I think it was. And uh, those guys were both in the top six for decent chunks of uh, of this season so so you but 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 anyway my point is you bring in one competent top nine player for not much maybe you grab a reclamation prospect project guy for your third line at a at a minimal cost and you you try yeah, and like get Talbot out to make that neutral <laughs> no no dimitri bad dimitri <laughs> but but you do that you have clefbaum come back and in the state of the west i i think you've got a puncher's chance maybe maybe it's one chance in three you make the playoffs it's not great. It's but but I think that's the ownership dic- what what ownership is going to dictate and and I honestly can't say it's the wrong course of action. Yeah. No, I agree. And I agree there is a puncher's chance, but man, I hope uh 
I hope Richard Panic and uh, and Alex Shasan send you some sort of a care package or something because no one no one has ever extolled their virtues like this on a podcast before. I mean, my goodness. Compared compared to Tyratty and Ryan Spooner, my friend, they are. Yeah, jeez, things are bleak. Um, well, we didn't we didn't really get into like let's let's fantasy book this a little bit. Like let, let's put ourselves in the shoes. Let's say, um, you know, forget Mike Gillis and, and Lawrence Gilman. Let's say. Uh, we get a call from Bob Nicholson and, and they want uh, a one-two punch, a one-two ticket of uh, of Jonathan Willis and Dmitry Filipovich running the Oilers. What are we doing? How are we approaching this summer? Um, let's forget this year. Let's say whatever. They, they make the playoffs and they lose in five games in round one to Winnipeg. Um, and no substantial moves have been made. So you're approaching this summer. You basically have this roster that's in place right now. What are the moves you're making to ensure that... Um, we're not having the same discussion again next year. It's like all oh, McDavid's generating 40 to 50% of the, of the goals. And, uh, he has no help. And I, I, I for, for the love of God, I cannot have another heart trophy conversation again. And no, it seems like we're no. about to have it, but I don't. So what are we going to do to prevent that history from repeating itself? Okay. So I think they need three top nine forwards. Uh, maybe plea RV is one of those. I mean, ultimately, they're going to need more, but I think three is the number you're looking at this summer. Uh, if if one of those is Pliyarvi, which is a maybe, you still have to find two others, and they can actually clear a little bit of money. I think you're, you're probably buying out Andre Sekera or sending him to Robidaw Island. I think you're probably buying out Milan Lucic, and uh, that clears, I think, $6 million. You're going to bury Spooner. You're going to bury Brandon Manning. Don't buy those out because you don't want the long-term pain. They've got one year to go. You're just going to eat it for a year and replace them with league minimum guys. And to be honest, the guy I'd be looking at the most, I, I, I can't fathom that he's actually out there, but he keeps cropping up in trade rumors. The guy I'm looking at the most is Colton Pareko in St. Louis. I, I don't. I, I, it, it boggles my mind that the rumors are there, and I don't know if they're true, and maybe they're not. And you'll get angry letters from St. Louis fans saying, "Oh, Willis is is dreaming in Technicolor." I'm just going with what's out there. Mm-hmm. I, I think you call up St. Louis and you say, "Okay, I'm going to send you Darnell Nurse, and I'm going to send you more than that. Tell me what the more than that has to be, and let's talk about Colton Pareko. That's maybe a pie in the sky dream, but I think that's what. That, to me, is the cornerstone move you make this summer. Is you take Darnell Nurse, who's a good, useful player. It's not a bad thing to have that. But he's also, I, I think he's had a, a massive bump in points percent in, uh, in scoring because he's on the power play. Right. And I think when Clefbaum went down, he showed pretty definitively that he's not ready to step into a first-pairing role, which means you don't want him as your number three because your number three defenseman has to be able to do that. So to me, that makes him a number four right now. I think he'll be more than that eventually, but probably just a number three eventually. So I think you try to trade him for a legitimate difference maker, somebody at that Colton Pareko, uh, Hampus Lindholm um, level. Yeah, and I think at this point, um, I think the market is definitely there for him, right? Just based on age, but also... uh, well, he's a good player. He's I mean, a good he's, player, but he also has the benefit, I think, in terms of perception around the league. If you look at yes. his numbers, just because he has been a bit of a, an accumulator this year, just because he has been thrust into such a big role, he's gotten such a high volume of minutes, especially playing with the top guys and on the power play, that like I think his numbers look better than they would in an ideal circumstance if he was playing that second pairing role that, yes. that, that you were saying he's better suited for. So I think like just in terms of as a trade asset, I think this might be the time to jump and capitalize on that because i'm not sure on a healthy oilers team what his numbers will look like next year well and and the the problem with uh with the oilers because i you know i look at nurse's age and i see the upside there i i and but i look at the oilers and they just don't have a lot of assets that can potentially bring back more than their actual um you know uh cold hard ruthless uh true true talent level worth and and nurse is one of those guys who might be able to do it both because of that and because of the physical element that he brings, which is still prioritized by GMs, and it's probably less prioritized by the one to uh, Willis Filipovich, um, mm. general manager, general managerial monster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you've talked about this a bunch, and I'm completely in lockstep with you that like this is a desirable gig because you already have the top upper echelon pieces in place with McDavid and Dreisaitl and Clefbaum and so on and so forth that. Um, 
if he's a, a smart GM comes in and makes a couple good crafty moves to either wisely shed some money or bring in some talent on the margins that can help supplement that all of a sudden this is a team that could take off and and so it's a desirable situation I think um, assuming that you're gonna as a GM have at least relatively full autonomous power and not constantly yes. being uh you know meddled with and yeah. um and so yeah, it, it's uh, I'm, I'm bullish on this franchise moving forward, uh, just because of that. And when you have a guy like Connor McDavid, I'm, I'm going to bet on that talent winning out and eventually them finding the right recipe for it. But at the same time, like it, it's this weird uh, mix or balance where in the short, relative short term, I'm very bearish on it because I just kind of need to see them actually start to put that plan in, into place for me to start buying into it because we've been burned so many times in the past. I don't think there's any question that all sorts of skepticism are warranted about who they're going to hire. That's got it. They've got to get it right. And um, based on the track record, there isn't much reason to believe that they will. So that, that has to happen. But if that happens, I'm, I'm right with you. I'm very bullish on this team. And, and both for the reasons you said, that's having that elite core is the most important thing, but uh, we've, we've beat up on Peter Shirelli so much over this last hour. I think we should mention one thing that he did that I really respect which was last summer he didn't go all in on panic moves to try and make the team better immediately. I mean, his hands were tied to some extent by things he'd done in the past, to be sure, so it's not like a, a blanket endorsement. But, I mean, he had the number 10 pick in Evan Bouchard, and he didn't trade that. Yep. Um, and Bouchard's a, a legitimate blue-chip prospect. They've got all basically all their picks for the next three years. I think there's a fifth-rounder missing or something, but, but basically all their picks. Uh, they don't have another prospect of Bouchard's caliber, but they do have a decent collection of second-tier guys. Your Caleb Jones, your Ethan Bears, your Ryan McLeods, and uh, yeah, Yamamoto. Yeah, and you and you look at the farm team in Bakersfield. Yeah. The farm team in Bakersfield has been very good this year. And you look at the birthdays of their leading scores; they're all 20, 21, 22. So there are a lot of chips that are coming up. And if you're a GM taking this post with a, and you're looking at say a three to five year window in terms of where you're going to be assessed, you have the time to let. Some of these guys come up naturally, and you and because well, there's so many right shot defensemen. For instance, like next year they're going to have Bouchard, they're going to have Joel Paris, and they're going to have Ethan Bear all pushing for a third pair right D roll. Um, and you can't break in all of those guys, so you have a little bit of trade currency. I mean, not not like crazy high end guys, but you have a little bit of trade currency in the present. So all you have to do is navigate in this immediate window. And, and try and make good moves and boost the team here. And in the future, you should have young cost-controlled talent bubbled up, and you have young elite talent signed long-term as your core. So I, I think it's a very good situation to be in. Well, and as we've seen with um, with Maroon and with Shasan now, um, and, and the luxury of having great players like Conor McDavid is I think every year you'll be able to, on the cheap, find guys who can come in and, and, and move up and down the lineup and contribute when they're playing on the top line. And, and so you can save some money there as well. And that's why it's going to be very uh, crucial or vital that they don't wind up paying Alex Chasson this summer for the year he's had. And I guess that'll be a good test of uh, of where they're at and whether things have really changed and whether the person they bring in to run the ship is, uh, is doing the right job, because I think that's going to be a pretty good litmus test for a sort of a, a, an issue or a bump in the road that would have kind of plagued them in the past that maybe they can hopefully resolve and, and uh, stop making that same mistake in the future. So I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it's uh, obviously a situation with a lot of nuance and whenever you're talking about a team with Connor McDavid, everyone's eyes are going to be peeled to it. And uh, hopefully uh, things are more optimistic in the years to come. And Jonathan, plug some stuff. Let people know, <laughs> let people know where they can find your work. Cause you guys have been absolutely crushing it uh, with all this coverage of everything that's been going on with Oilers. And uh, I want everyone to check it out if they haven't already. Thanks, Dimitri. I, I am at Jonathan Willis on Twitter. I am also a staff writer for the athletic. All my work is found there. Uh, and of course we have uh, Alan Mitchell and Tyler Dello and a lot of smart people writing and Pierre Lebrun and Greg Custance, mm -hmm. a lot of smart people writing about um, Edmonton right now. So do check our work out on that site. Well, yeah, I highly, uh, I highly recommend that. And uh, Jonathan, keep fighting the good fight. I'm, uh, I'm glad we finally got to do this. I know it's been a pretty busy week for you. Um, so hopefully uh, things die down here a little bit during the All-Star break and you can rest up and recharge your batteries for uh, what's going to be a spirited uh, late-season push by the Oilers once they acquired Richard Panic. <laughs>
I, I look forward to the uh, the Edmonton Vancouver first round series against Calgary and Winnipeg. I think that 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 all half of the first round being Canadian is going to be great. <laughs> Can't wait. All right, chat soon. <laughs> Take care. Cheers. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockeypediocast.